Hi, builders. Welcome to the Dare to Build podcast, where we talk about all things business and software development related. We explore the problems that we can solve and the future we can create by building. I'm your host, Rachel Miller, and this is the Dare to Build podcast. Today, I'm joined by Daniel Weinman, the founder and CEO of Seasoned. He has 25 years of experience in tech. He's founded and operated eight companies and has launched over 100 tech products. We cover a lot of surface area in this episode. We talk about why dev shops have such a bad rap, how to create paper prototypes and other no-code solutions, Season's methodology of building software, and so much more. I am so excited to share this episode with you guys. Let's jump into the show. Woo! Podcast day. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> so welcome, folks. Today I have amazing news to share, and we're gonna start something different as well today. We have someone to introduce you to. It's Rachel Miller. Rachel is our new chief evangelist and her story is amazing because she went from client to evangelist and a lot in between because we we have a beautiful relationship that we cultivated like like a work relationship even when we were not working together. So it's a real pleasure to welcome you, Rachel, and the stage is yours as our chief evangelist. Now you're the boss. I'm here just to to contribute. Nice. Thank you, Daniel. I'm so happy to be here. It feels so good to be having this conversation. I think we're going to get through a lot of really useful stuff for folks, and I'm just so happy to be here. This is going to be such a fun conversation. Okay, so first thing I want to talk about, because this is always floating around in my awareness as a non-technical founder, um, and you and I have talked about this several times, but it's why do dev shops have such a bad rap? Love it. Why? (laughs) Yes. And you know, we had a conversation about this probably like a week or so ago about how whenever non-technical founder and software development is found in the same conversation for whatever reason wherever you are we need to take five to ten minutes to disparage and deprecate dev shops just so no (laughs) non-technical people will use them and so let's talk about why is this why i really love that you start started with the hard stuff (laughs) let's let's go um straight to the point people are wary of agencies and dev shops because they should because we as a community have in in a i like to think that season is the exception but we as a community as the the full market of dev shops we have failed to convey how hard software development development is Mm -hmm. in reality when I reflect on, on the failures, uh, because Seasoned is my third agency, I, 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 I've de- made the mistakes myself, not only I've seen them in the market. I think that's the biggest one. 
we think that because software is all around us, because we we live in a world of applications, we think yeah. they're easy because they're ubiquitous. So because they're all around, we think this is gonna be somehow easier than it is. And yeah, that's that's the first one. There's a lot, a lot okay. to working with agencies and I I would love to have a longer conversation for as long as we need but I would like to start with this one building yeah. software is really 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 hard and when a client comes to us and we act as if it weren't right which I think we, a lot of dev shops do so we should yeah. talk about that too like why why is it that it became kind of culturally accepted in this professional arena for dev shops to kind of more or less lie and say, hey, that's a great idea. We can do this easily. Like, why is it that that happened and why did it stay reinforced over time? I think we lied to ourselves first. I don't think mm. I don't think any any agency thinks, oh, I'm going to pretend here that something is easier because I want a client or, or I think okay. some people do that unconsciously but the first lies to ourselves we underestimate the challenge of building software and that's because uh, I don't know if that's if that's the only reason but one reason is yeah. we get excited with technology we feel like when we want to build something for us we can just think it and then build it because we we know how know the language how to how to do that but once we have to interact with the real world imagine i i thought something i built it and then i brought to the world and then i understood understood that that's not how things work and then i understood that there was this external service that we needed to communicate with and the communication is messy for some reason and then uh our users start telling us that this this thing that we thought is not helping them then we need to right. change it and then we the leap from i thought i built to i thought i built i i iterated on it i understood the 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 complexity of the human endeavor mm -hmm. and then i had to translate the human endeavor into software the that's the biggest complexity translating the human endeavor into software but there's also technical rabbit holes as well so it's right. it's a very complex world the software world and i also think too like another layer of complexity on there is the relationship between the dev shop and the client because not only are these you know, technical rabbit holes existing and just the ability to translate a human need into software, that whole level of complexity. There's also like if the client goes and talks to their users and gets some idea of what needs to take place, what needs to happen. Right. And it's probably a fuzzy, rough idea. It's not always super clear. Yeah. And then they have to go and communicate this to a dev shop like, hey, this is kind of what I got. It's like so much insight and nuance gets lost within that process. Yeah. And so and this is something we're going to talk about soon, too, is like the process and the methodologies uh -huh. and the technologies that underpin 
what season does and why that makes you guys so incredibly different from any other dev shop out there. But I just wanted to speak to even the complexity between just simply communicating ideas from all of these different people throughout that yeah. timeline. Yeah, I think I think that the human endeavor is not only outside the our client's company, it's inside and is within the relationship uh, dev shop client or agency client. Yeah. I don't know. I think I think what happens is that because there's so much demand for building software, mm -hmm. people get carried away. And, and yeah. I'm talking about developers and entrepreneurs uh, that start agencies. They get carried away. They, they somehow, and, and I, I won't say they, we somehow get confused about the amount of demand we have. It's, it's so easy for people to need us that it looks like maybe we're better than we actually are or it's easier than it actually is one yeah. of the two whenever i see today a developer switching jobs for example i, I know this is a tangent but it's it, it yeah. makes uh it will it will come full circle an individual developer can start his his or her career today get their first job put their their title as software developer on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. Within a few months, they will be approached by so many recruiters that they will eventually land a job for which they're not qualified yet, but the, the, the person on the hiring side is willing to take the risk and invest because it's so hard to find developers. So you start uh, a bubble this way because you have uh, an overpriced developer mm -hmm. in the market yeah. and then a year or so uh, sometimes less now we we had a correction in the market so it's not as outrageous right now but it was uh, up until i don't know three months ago it was like less than a year you would get a proposal for which you're not qualified again and you you <sighs> double your salary someone who's not mature enough to understand their level of craft will get carried away. They will get carried away. First of all, because they don't have a point of reference. In a market with, where everybody is new, like at least 50% of the developers have less than five years of experience. And that's, that comes, that comes from, from a statistic that says that the number of developers double every five years and by oh consequence okay. you you have a, at least 50 percent of developers with less than five years of experience so you're looking around you're seeing yeah. you're you look good when you compare yourself but you don't have you don't have a good benchmark in terms no. of what's what's this craft at its highest you don't know wow. it wow this is fascinating i think what i'd love to know from you because daniel you are you're such a visionary you're so innovative and you're also like a wonderful ceo like you're very good at developing others like you're really good at noticing what people can improve on how they can develop themselves personally so i'd love to just take a little moment for you to offer a piece of advice to software engineers based on everything you just shared like not having that benchmark 
how does a software engineer ensure that they're actually growing and perfecting their craft and not getting caught up in this, oh, I just got poached again and my salary just doubled kind of environment? Open source. Okay. That's that's the answer because the open source community will tell you the truth no matter what. They will not allow you to add bad code to their code base. They will not allow you to to make a decision you haven't thought through very well. Okay. And the, sometimes it's even harsh to be inside uh, uh, an open source community because sometimes you, you can even, uh, people can let you down, make you feel bad about your skills because they will be so oh. assertive. They will tell you straight on if they think your code sucks. If you contribute to an open source project or mm-hmm. multiple open source projects and you make sure you're always working on open source, you will get better. There are other things people people can do, but open source is the best, the best training for for every kind of developer. That's so interesting. I think where I want to go next, I mean, there are about a dozen places we can go. Can I propose something? I would love for you to tell us briefly your story. Tell us about Close Gap. Tell us about what you do and what brought you here, because I think this this will be of great value to totally. to people. I think I'll start with with my experience um, as a non-technical first-time founder trying to figure out how I was going to build software. Mm-hmm. Um, and really where it started was I I was told, well, you're, you're told a number of things as like a non-technical first-time founder, which is one, like you should learn how to code. So that's like one mm-hmm. option you get. It's like yeah. learn how to code. And then another option is find your co-founder, CTO, technical soulmate. That's your other mm-hmm. option. And so when I first started out, those were the two things that everyone told me, right? And that's kind of what yeah. you get blasted with in Silicon Valley and San Francisco, which is where I was at that time. You know, it's like you're either going to find your co-founder, CTO, or you learn how to code, or you don't build software. And for me. <laughs> I had experienced this problem set that I knew that if we applied software to it, it could really bolster the current system of care that existed. And I'll get into what that means now. So what I wanted to build was something that would make it really easy for school counselors, school social workers, teachers, and administrators within K-12 schools to support the mental health of kids. And I knew that technology would be a useful thing to use in this scenario, because what happens is there are schools where there are over 600 students for every one school counselor. That's a statistic here in California. And no one school counselor can support the emotional health needs of 600 students. That is insane. We know that. Impossible. Impossible. And even just to add on a bit more complexity, they're underpaid, they're overburdened, they're not respected, they're not cherished. And so imagine being tasked with supporting 600 students under those constraints. And so I knew looking at this kind of problem set, okay, well, if we build software 
that makes it really easy for kids to ask for help when they need it. And then that software were to triage kids and say, hey, these are the five kids that really need support right now. These are the 10 to 20 kids that could use support maybe tomorrow or maybe the next day. That that would enable schools and school counselors, all of the staff roles who support kids, to move from this reactive approach of all of these kids having behavioral issues, mental health crises, to a proactive approach. School counselors knowing exactly who needs help when. Technology, that's software. That's a software problem. And so... And no one else was building it. I didn't see any technologists out there that were building it. So me, even being a non-technical person, I knew, oh, no, no, this does need to exist in the world. And for me, learning how to code was not something I wanted to spend my time on. I'm the sort of person who orients myself toward my strengths. Right. And everyone does things differently. But I believe that with the limited time we have in our lives, like double down on your strengths. Like, yes, your weaknesses suck. That's a bummer, but you have your strengths. And so that was yeah. always my mindset. So I was like, I'm not learning how to code. And and then the other one was I spent, you know, several, at least like one to two years really looking for this technical soulmate. And that's what wow. it felt like. I was looking for this romanticized version of this CTO who was going to change my life and solve all my problems. Like really, it was silly, this kind of, you know, this mindset or this narrative. And so it was extremely challenging. And what I decided was that what my radar always goes off when someone says this is the only way you can do it. I'm always Mm -hmm. like, no, something's Mm -hmm. wrong here. We have to do it another way. And so that was kind of my non-technical journey. And once I found you guys, once I found Seasoned, everything kind of got flipped on its head. And I had been told the entire time, don't use agencies, don't use dev shops, like beware, don't go near dev shops. <laughs> and, you know, I I met you guys and it was, it was actually shocking how quickly you guys became a true extension of the team, how I really knew that I could trust you guys to build the right thing. Like one thing that people should know about Seasoned is you don't let your clients build nonsense. You actually care yeah. about the entrepreneurial <laughs> journey of your client and whereas i think so many other dev shops will just kind of let their clients build all of this stuff without testing the ideas in the market and doing it appropriately and so for me so much trust had been built in the beginning and you guys really became an extension of the team that my experience was like oh no no people should absolutely use dev shops 100%. You just need to make sure that they're the correct ones. And like, I would love, I would love to turn it over to you and ask, how do you think Seasoned is different from the other agencies that exist? Because Seasoned is an outlier. And why is that? I hate that we are, but I think we are an outlier and and I hate I I really mean it that I hate uh, that we are because I would prefer that clients got to us without having spent all their money before meeting us in bad agency I, I, I would prefer that they were successful at great agencies and then came to a point where they were a great fit for us not because we're the only ones that are good but because we're a fit and then we would work with clients there's so much demand for software and so uh, few great dev shops out there 
that I would love to see more and more and more. And 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 I think we will start. And and, and yeah. maybe this is, a, this is a challenge for you. Let's start a movement to build better dev shops. Yeah. Because I think we Absolutely. we should. But why are we different? Or go ahead. I was gonna. There was a thought that just popped into my mind. I want to speak to the fact that software is eating the world, right? Mark Anderson uh -huh. has said that about a yes, billion times. And the truth is software really is eating the world and no longer is it gonna be like two dudes in a garage in Silicon Valley mm -hmm. that are the only people who are building software. Like that's just not mm -hmm. true anymore. And while that's a design or a model that typically works well when you want to build a startup and software, it's not the only way that yeah. people go about building software. And so I would love to open it up, you know, something in my journey too that I considered was no code solutions or mm -hmm. how to create a paper prototype. So let's open it up as well, just to all of the different options that exist when someone's looking at yeah. how do I go about building software? Yeah, I love it because agencies, even though we're, we're here to talk about agencies because we are one, agencies are only one of the options. Yeah. Just like a technical co-founder is only one of the options. Yeah. Just like learning to code is only one of the options. Mm -hmm. But today you, you can learn how to know code. And especially with Bubble.io, mm -hmm. you can get really far with a no-code yeah. product. It has advantages and disadvantages. For us, it wasn't the best uh, path as, as a company to... For start those a professional who don't service. Know. Yeah, for those who don't know, what what is Bubble.io and what does mm -hmm. it enable people to build quickly? Bubble.io is a no-code programming platform. You can build web apps with it without mm -hmm. writing one single line of code. And and I and I mean I mean real apps, not not just uh, the, the mockups and the workarounds that we usually see with other no-code alternatives. Right. Real apps. I, I come from, from, from a different generation. I learned to think in code. So mm -hmm. when I use Bubble, I feel like I'm, there's so much missing because I know where code is today. Yeah. But only because I have this experience. When I see other people going to use Bubble, they can easily spend the first two years of their software or more. I, I interviewed people that, that are using Bubble for more than four years in a, in, wow. in a real startup. Okay. And, and they don't, don't think they will move away from it. But Bubble is also only one of the options. You have plenty of no-code app builders. And <clears throat> right now you have Webflow is a website creator that's stepping into the programming side because they yesterday they they started the beta for their logic functionality where you can okay. say if this happens then we do this and then we start to feel more like programming inside right. webflow but this is new they they still a close beta mm -hmm. they they released I think it was yesterday or, or the day before yesterday. Wow. Like what founders 
should consider using Bubble.io or Webflow or any number of these no-code solutions. In, in, in a sense, which type of founders or what should they consider? I would say what like what sorts of problems could be solved using these solutions and then also what are the drawbacks of using no code solutions because those need to be spoken to as well the biggest drawback is that you might uh end up having to throw it all away when you move to code right. you you can you can do it either iteratively no no there's no need to do it in a one big rewrite in code mm -hmm. you can you can figure out ways of doing it uh, without <clears throat> being too much of a big uh, project. Mm -hmm. But that's one of the takeaways. Whenever you need code, you're going to have to move away from no code, right? But there are some things that, that are easier to build with code than with no code. And if you have access to developers or mm -hmm. you know how to code, it will be better to use code. With that said, I think almost all use cases can start with no code. I think I'm a very lean startup kind of guy, and I, and I mean it uh, in an extreme way. I always want to start minimal. I always want to do things that don't scale first, mm -hmm. and, then, and then only scale in time. That's why, uh, to be honest, that's why I, I, I built an agency. Talk about right. things that don't scale. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and but I but I love this game of trying to scale the things that don't scale. Right. So for me, whenever I think of a problem, I I know how to go to the place where I can start with no code. The the only reason I wouldn't start with no code is money is less scarce than my time. I, so uh, I, I'm, I'm, I have a hard time to, to, to find time to invest, to do manual stuff, etc., etc. But I do have uh, money to spend. Then you can, you can build your, your product directly with code. Other, right. Otherwise, I, the, even for us, the best clients have already done some validation with no code or you guys have done uh, yes. paper prototypes code yes you've validated so much before getting to us that when you got to us you knew what you had to build 100 that's why we were able to to be fast building your mvp not 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 because sure. the mvp was complex it was very simple actually yeah. but you had already Absolutely. learned a lot yeah yeah, so many assumptions had been tested at that point. I think that's another thing that sets seasoned kind of aside from the competition or from agencies in general is that, and I know you've done this with other clients too, where you've recommended that they create some sort of paper prototype, right? Like whether or not it's actually on paper is not, not of concern. It's about creating some sort of real world solution that does not require code and also does not necessarily require bubble.io or any other yep. no code solutions. And I think that's something that 
for me, like when I talk to first time founders or folks who are just starting out now, something I'm always recommending is build a paper prototype, like think in your mind, Mm what is the thing that tests these assumptions? And it could be like an email. It could be, right? Like when you really get down to what this prototype might be, it could be as simple as an email, really just talking to people, but there needs to be some way that founders test those assumptions before I think they jump in even to no code solutions. I know that yeah. you really support that. The, the extreme version of that is starting with a paid service. Like imagine, I, I know for close gap, at least this version, it wouldn't be possible to, to go and ask in person 600 kids how they were feeling this day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but, it, but yeah. imagine that was possible right. and, and, fin- and financially viable. Yeah. I, I, would, I would think my mind goes there and not even the paper prototype. It's like, how can I charge schools for me to go to the schools and interview personally yeah. 600 kids yeah. and and the, the the charging folks comes together because if you can make a service uh, financially sustainable mm-hmm. when you automate it you're gonna like explode in terms of margins if whenever you start with a service and then the pricing is already set for a service yeah. you can say you're gonna because you automated price is going to get half the price, but half the price will still be like wonderful margin. And yeah. when you start with the tech, the tech, people expect free as the price. It's and so then, true. Then it's an uphill battle. Yeah. So I, but that's my game. I, 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 I don't approach. recommend it for everyone. <laughs> yeah. And it, in you have to cases. have a lot of patience. It's true. And in some cases, you know, Close Gap is a good example of where it wouldn't be super suitable. Like one could try maybe with one classroom and you could see what happens. But I think there's there's a lot there for non-technical people to think about. And I love the service approach. Like if I was just one person offering a service to maybe another person, like a consumer business or, you know, business what would I be doing? Like, what would that look like? And then kind of scaling that up from there. I love that approach. One thing I never told people, uh, at least in public, from from the start, seasoned, in my mind, is a low-code product. It's not an agency. Mm, Say more. (laughs) That's super juicy. (laughs) I feel a little even embarrassed telling this because it's so far in the future that I don't like um, turning this in a, into a value proposition or something like that. But that's the vision mm. I have. Say that in another way. I want to make sure I'm really clear on it. I don't want to promise people that we are uh, something that we're not right now. So we're an agency right now. I don't want to say that I'm building is a local uh, solution that will make software development 10 times faster, which is what I am building in my mind, yeah. not in my mind, in our in our actions and in our internal yeah. communications. That's what we are building. But uh, that's that was on my mind before we started season. Whenever mm. I thought about this, it was like, I'm going to start with this service and I'm going to over time become more like a product than like an agency, but always maintaining the service layer. Just it's yeah. just that the, 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 
we become more effective and efficient efficient through process and technology. So it's not something I like to advertise now. It's not I I don't feel uh, secure about advertising it, like shouting to the world that that's what we're building. Yeah. But as you saw in the draft for the new positioning we're creating, we're starting yeah. to hint about mm -hmm. this, like. And we are we are three times faster and we won't stop till we're 10x like yeah. this 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 kind of communication is more like about who we are because we won't stop till, till we, we get to, to 10x in productivity we might not even ever get there but mm -hmm. that's who we are we're, that's what we're aiming for but it's this really it's a shows. great example of, of the patience around yeah uh, starting with service, yeah. literally building an agency is is starting with service. Yeah, but it's the most in, extreme in service oriented. Yeah, that's huge. I mean, that's just yet another thing that really sets seasoned apart is that instead of having this inflated um, like overhead and tons of staff and wanting to, you know, keep your clients on for as long as possible, even if you're not serving them anymore, right? Like this very kind of inflated way of being an agency, you're actually quite like wanting to eliminate yourselves in a way, like you're becoming more product-based and want to eliminate all of that, which is really beautiful. And it's something that I think founders should think more about even when you know it makes me think of like pr agencies that we've partnered with and all sorts of agencies who are really just trying to stay you know on that paycheck or really just trying to continue to get that monthly recurring you know cost and it's it's just a really different mindset that seasoned has and and also strategy right there's there's and a strategy. no nothing bad about being a great PR agency that doesn't invest in R&D. There, mm -hmm. There's nothing, you just train great people, people get right. good at their craft and they serve clients well. And for the entrepreneurs of these agencies, this model might generate more profit in the short term. And that's nothing mm -hmm. bad about that as well. The, the thing with me, is that I want, I wouldn't be motivated if it was just that. I need to yeah. feel that I'm improving the system for everyone. But mm -hmm. it's it's a personal decision. I don't think our, our business is necessarily better than this yeah. other kind of agency. It's just a different approach. I think for some people, it's 10 times better, but not, but for others, it, the, the, the more, let, let's call it traditional agency approach mm -hmm. for others is better it, you have to, you, you know, this by being a former client, you have to deal with our lack of flexibility sometimes because this is the way we work. Right. This is the. <clears throat> this is the technology we use. We, we won't use right. that other one for, for you. It wasn't an issue that the, the tech stack. But yeah. sometimes the methodology, right? And you even contributed to us improving our methodology because it's we were true. like, this is the way we work. And you're saying, but it's not working for me. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then, then we changed the way we work. But once we yeah. changed, we changed to the one new way we work and we won't work any other way 
again. Now, yeah. Yeah, so sometimes having a more flexible agency that's just developing the craft is better. But mm -hmm. when you want exceptional results, I think the more specialized uh, and the more R&D focused agency yeah. is better. I agree. I I know what you mean that one is not better than the other. It's more just like what you value and what you're oriented towards, which I'm and always what oriented need. towards results. Yeah. But I, I do think there's some truth in traditional agencies. I think people get complacent. And I think that mm -hmm. it's not only you who would find a lack of motivation there. I think that in traditional kind of agency settings where you know, you're paying people to, you know, do these sorts of things. I think that there is a certain amount of like paper pushing going on, right? They're just like, I want to make my hours. I want to just do work, even if it's just busy work. And that's just yeah. human nature, right? So I, I think for yeah. me, the traditional model concerns me because because agency folks, and now I'm really thinking of a particular experience I've had recently, but it's, you know, agency folks aren't really bought into the mission, especially in that sort of mm -hmm. traditional setting. Mm -hmm. And so I think that people can kind of lose sight of the results. And so for me, when I hear about seasoned, you know, really you guys anchoring yourselves to R&D, wanting to perfect the process, wanting to use the best methodologies out there, wanting to be 10x faster than anyone else, that's better for me at least because mm -hmm. i know that you're anchoring toward results and not just filling up time with doing things yeah how does that sit with you i, I think i agree that the for for many people i i, I don't want to say everybody because i know yeah. there's a lot of need for example in software there's there are a lot of folks that just need someone to configure their ERP software. Would it be better if we had a lot of R&D around it? And I think we do have uh, around ERP, by the way. Yeah. Yes, but for most people, would is that the best option? Maybe, I don't know. But mm -hmm. coming back to us, I do agree with you that it's, for me at least, it's best. It's the, it's, yeah. I'm creating the agency I would like to hire. But the, the, the complacency part is interesting. The, you said it, it's human nature, and I agree because I see it in myself as well. Sometimes yeah. it would be easier for me to, let's bring a, a real example. When, when yeah. I was saying, this is the way we work and to be specific, we had product owners on the team who was mm -hmm. were like acting like a middleman between tech and business and they were Wait, not let's technical. like really lay this out for people because I think <laughs> okay, it's going to okay, be, okay. so let's start over, like really lay out the PO, how everything worked, because this is going to be interesting uh, okay. for folks. So let, let's expand it, but let's re remember that we, we have a point about the complacency to making yes. at the end. Okay. <laughs> so long story then, we started that season with a conscious decision of instead of having a PO, which is a product owner, a very common role in tech where it's someone who will translate the business needs and take it to, to the dev team and, and make sure they <clears throat> the, the right product is being built. Instead right. of having the product owner who usually is non-technical, 
in the sense of not being a programmer, very technical in their craft, the PO craft, we decided to have a CTO being the, the face and the, the main point of communication with the clients. With and the that's, client. yeah. yeah, and that's great when you're like one, two, five, ten people. Very, very hard when you jump from 10 to 40, which was what happened in 2020 with us. The client uh, interacting with a CTO is excellent. It's mm-hmm. a great experience, especially if the CTO navigates well the bridge between business and technology. Yes. And because we called ourselves ourselves seasoned, that's what I wanted to offer from the beginning, because it, you're going to be dealing on a day-to-day basis with a yes. seasoned technologist, let's call it. Yeah. And that when we had the opportunity to grow from 10 to 40 people in in less than one year, I had to let it let go of this expectation mm-hmm. because I wouldn't be able to grow. And we decided to try the more traditional approach of having POs and, and having the seasoned technologists uh, on the back office helping mm-hmm. everybody but not being the daily communication we had a ton of friction with this like a ton of friction not only with you with our clients mm. and it was worth the friction because we were yeah. able to grow and learn but you pushed me when we started mm-hmm. the friction became uh and this is a good uh, a very good point you had your budget was way smaller than our other clients at the moment Mm -hmm. so you had to have more results for your month like right and for the other clients it wasn't that hard they were feeling the friction they they understood even though we had friction we were like much better than the alternative that that would be to build an internal team or to hire other agencies they were like content (laughs) but they were not really happy they they were like okay this is working and you was like "Mm, this is barely working because i need more because my my resources are limited and i need to make sure we build more and more and more for me to compare season with building my own team it's starting to feel like maybe building my own team would be better because at least i would have more control and influence directly over the the result maybe a smaller team but 100 percent within my control would be better and you you were thinking about that Mm -hmm. Uh, and we were discussing openly about this because we we really prefer that clients really need us and right. otherwise, I would recommend other other approaches. But you told me the following. You said, I miss the daily communication. The, no, that, that's the expression I, I just came to my mind. The highly strategical, highly technical daily communication. Yeah, that's, I remember that's that That's exactly what you said. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And when you told me that, because I knew how hard it would be to scale the, the CTO role, I was right. kind of challenged, but at the same time, not very initially very open to it. Because I was saying, hmm, 
I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if, of course. if, if that will ever come back, yeah. right? But serendipity is a great uh, thing because your conversa conversation, uh, I ended up feeling bad about not being able to provide this, which is something mm -hmm. I wanted from the get-go. And I, th I think it was the same night or something. I, I went to Google and started researching to see if, if something came up and yeah. I found Shape Up. Shape Up. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> Which then... <laughs> like reconfigured everything in yeah. the best way. Yeah. And then yeah. it was like, oh my God, I think we can. It's going to be hard anyway, because hiring yeah. CTOs, it's, it's, it's the bottleneck, bottleneck for season for sure. But uh, it's going to be hard, but it's doable. Like I was mm -hmm. like, mm, I don't know if we can do it. Yes, we can do. And then we started iterating experimenting with shape up initially with you because you read the book you you bought mm -hmm. the concept you you said okay i'm down for it and then instead of having the po as the point person right. we brought uh, a cto to 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 this place but doing shaping which is yeah. the one aspect of shape up and the other benefits of shape up made this investment worthwhile and then we transitioned away from scrum which was the methodology mm -hmm. we were trying to use at the time our right. version we always customized the methodology to shape up and that was a game changer like everything started working after we did that of course yeah. it's very hard to to run a shape up operation it's very very hard but we were uh, qualified for it and uh, it yes. was a great fit for us and and it, it worked i want to speak more to well first i want you to finish your complacency thought because i, I know i, I don't remember where i was going to let's <laughs> move, let's let's continue <laughs> move it on okay i was like i'm gonna put that in my mind so something that that I want to move into a bit more. And we've been talking about this with Shape Up already, but Seasoned is an outlier for so many different reasons. And I know you have like a challenging relationship with that truth um, for so many reasons. But the reason that I think that Seasoned is so different is because of the way you guys do things internally. It's vastly different than the way other mm -hmm. dev shops or agencies function. And so mm -hmm. you once said to me that you you believe that Seasoned has become a competence-driven culture. That the reason yes. that the company is doing so well is because of the people, and not only the team members, but it's because of the team members and the tools and methodologies and technologies that you've adopted and perfected over time. One of those yeah. being Shape Up. But I would love for you to speak to all of those things. And we can, we can take it one by one, but I would love for you to just share with everyone how Season functions internally. So if maybe another agency is listening, they might be able to take away three or four things that they could implement. If a founder's listening, they will understand how you function internally and why you can be 3x faster now, 10x faster in a few months, hopefully. Um, so share Let's, with us. I'll, I'll settle with a few years. <laughs> yeah, a few years. I'm like more, <laughs> faster, faster. <laughs> that's 
that's the spirit. That's the spirit. <laughs> you know, <laughs> both, you both know, I bring that energy to the table. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 <laughs> if we are bring that energy together with the energy of patience, that's yes. when we explode. Right, like a groundedness that yeah. underpins that level of growth. Yeah. Since you mentioned how we do it, there, there's a lot to unpack. To unpack. Okay. Here. But I, I have to start with the business model and the monetization mm -hmm. model because that's really where it starts. My past uh, agency failed not because I, I, we were younger, we, we didn't know what we were doing, all, all that. But there's yes. one <laughs> fundamental thing that, that led us to fail. And, and we were very successful, fail in the, same, in the sense of not scaling only mm -hmm. because we were very successful with small agencies we just yeah. couldn't scale and couldn't invest as much in r&d culture and etc but the, the only reason is because the market has a standard and it's interesting we should get into that the pressure you had from your board if you if you're comfortable oh with yeah that, yeah around this because <clears throat> we charge upfront for the month and the market pays 90 days later 90 days later right. means like 60 days after the the month is done right the the market usually is where when mm -hmm. the average company that hires an agency pays yeah so it's like net 60 on an invoice exactly yeah. exactly that and we charge before the service starts that's very challenging for some people to to take the leap of faith around this but it changes the game for us because we have a positive cash flow cycle we can whenever we need to grow we can immediately invest in r d and other stuff we can immediately use the cash to invest immediately mm -hmm. when we had the 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 growth spurt uh, of 2020 from 10 to yeah. 40 that I was talking about wouldn't be able to make it if we had a net 60 uh, billion right. cycle. Because what we had to do is we had to grow from 10 to 40 mm -hmm. within a few months. The R&D necessary to be able to sustain the 40 had to start together with the growth spurt. Otherwise, right. we wouldn't see the results later on. Right. And and when you uh, brought the feedback to me that the, the methodology we had wasn't working for you, we were able to say, okay, let's put a CTO, CTO right away, even though yeah. you didn't pay anything extra for us. Right. And it's not the pricing model. It's the billing cycle. Technically, it's the float we generate. We generate mm -hmm. float and yeah. the float can be invested into anything we want, usually R&D, recruiting, culture. One thing that we did during the, the spurt was bringing on seasoned leadership. Absolutely. Because we, we, we had the resources to do that because of the yeah. business cycle. It might just be worth saying because from my experience, I would talk to my board, I would talk to my philanthropic investors, and they would say, Oh, no, no, that's not how dev shops work. That's not how <laughs> agencies work. You you should be paying them three months afterwards. What are you talking about? You can't pay them up front. And I just want to highlight again 
because you just put it perfectly, but even more succinctly might be helpful. When you are paid up front, you are able to iterate and adjust and perfect things in ways that traditional dev shops are unable to do because they won't get that money in for 90 days. That's huge. It's huge. So like you said- they take on debt, right? Or they take take on on a lot of debt. Absolutely. And then of course they experience, you know, employee turnover and what have you, which brings a whole host of other problems. And so I think it's just, it's really important again to underpin how much, um, like what those resources, what that money does up front for you guys as an agency. It almost yep. makes it so you can behave like you're not an agency, which is what every yep. client wants, yep. right? So when we I behave. come to you and I say, yeah. So when I come to you and I say, Daniel, this isn't working. This process is wrong. That's wrong. We got to do this. We should do this. And you and I, of course, co-create around it. Instead of just talking nonsense and nothing happening, you can actually do what you need to do on your end, which in our case was put a CTO in. Being able not to make even one exception to this rule for the the five years we've been in business is what allowed us to, to happen. And I only have the determination, the guts to, to stick to this mm-hmm. because I've been there in the past. I've made this mistake right. in the past and, and, I, and I, it, it made it impossible to grow in the sense of get, get better. Mm-hmm. But it's very, very hard to stick to our guns uh, when negotiating this. Uh, mm-hmm. The only thing that, that makes people hire us, even though we have this motto, is our reputation. Like our reputation and the fact that we bring a lot of value during the sales cycle. So so we captivate the, the client before uh, they have to pay a dime. Absolutely. And you're delivering, you're captivating, but you're also delivering value. Because there's a lot yes, of yes. you know advice By, and guidance that you offer during that time. Yeah, yeah, captivating in in that sense, yeah. much more than anything else. We 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 help the client gain clarity and precision yes. around the product mm-hmm. before they engage with us, and then once they compare that to other uh, firms, they will say, hmm, yeah. maybe I should pay upfront for these guys. Yeah other because they already feel like a partner then but uh, but i mean it takes it takes a lot of determination and clarity to be able to stick to this rule of cash flow positive always yeah and i also think it speaks to the level of like we can innovate with software we can innovate with ideas but i think that there's always room to innovate in business model, in billing cycle, in your case, um, even in my case with entity structure, like with all of these mm-hmm. kind of more administrative yes. things that we take for granted. We just accept, oh, that's the way the billing cycle works. Oh, that's yeah. the way this entity structure works. When in reality, all of these things should be tools to help us reach our mission. And I think yeah. that you're doing that really well with the billing cycle change. Yeah just came to mind uh, something whenever someone says because you said it really well like but but all agencies 
charge net 60 mm -hmm. and, and i'll say but you're the same person that's recommending people not to use agencies exactly. and that's why <laughs> <laughs> that's what i was thinking they're like agencies are awful don't pay them for 90 days it's like i wonder why they're awful <laughs> but uh, but of course no it's it's fair i wanted to start with this because it the business model is the enabler for all the rest. But yeah. the the thing that sets us apart, I think, is that we are we're nerds that really love to think how to build better software and at scale. Like uh, there, there there are a lot of people who really like to craft software really well. And we also do that. But we we're gonna do that at a bigger scale that than most people can. It's a it's a long term commitment that and and but it's more like that, more like who we are actually. We when we were thinking about the new positioning that probably uh, will be launched soon, we were trying to find something that um, represents who we really are from the inside and the outside at the same time and the idea that we're builders and and but we're builders with a plan right we're we're like we want to build more and more and better and better and better and better in not only strategize not only craft we want to build but mm -hmm. I don't know if the distinction between craft and build here is, is clear, but but it's a sentiment. Maybe give us give us definitions of what you mean. I think I know, but I think it's worth speaking more to that. When I said strategize, I was thinking about the folks that do design thinking cost consultancy mm, or okay. innovation consultancy, which is great. And we have some of that in our DNA, yeah. but I never was able to to work with this kind of work i tried to i never could because we could spend 80 percent of our time designing and mm -hmm. sometimes less than 20 percent building mm, because okay. your your work is to create the strategy create the design create the the innovation etc and that's that's not for me and by by consequence not for Felipe because we got together because of this mm -hmm. and then we started building a team that over time what we understood is that we like to build stuff we we don't like only to think we like to build the right stuff so it, yeah. we need strategy we need strategy yeah. but we like to build we're builders yeah and then the other part which is craft i was thinking about why i never was satisfied with only building one product i had a few startups in my life and i was never really happy by just like crafting this beautiful thing mm -hmm. and it was nice don't get me wrong it's <laughs> nice to craft a beautiful thing but I wanted, uh, I don't know, I don't know, if, what, but I wanted more than that, which which mm -hmm. is what I'm calling build uh, yeah. here. And hugely inspired by Peter Thiel, I would say mm -hmm. that when I say build, I'm talking about having a vision of the future that's 
at the same time optimistic and determined. I know where I'm headed. I know mm -hmm. what we need to, to do. Because I'm optimistic about the future and I know what we need to do, let's build. Because that's... Right. After you know what you need to do, after mm -hmm. you're optimistic that you're gonna go there, it's time to build, right? That is so powerful. I wrote something down that you said. I once asked you, what problem are you solving? Mm -hmm. And you said, I'm solving the problem, how to consistently launch and scale technology software products fast. And it reminds me of what you're talking about in this building energetic. Yes. And it really is different from what other folks are doing. We can put a pin in that for a moment. But for me, when I hear you talking, I think about really the world that we're building at a grand scale yeah. and the fact that software is playing such a huge role in every aspect of our lives and that will only become more and more true as we continue on into the future. And so if that's true, then realizing the immense need we have for people who build and who build well. Yeah. So who don't necessarily get stuck in or not stuck. I'm not quite sure how to conceptualize this, but the way that I think about it is people not becoming too overwhelmed or preoccupied mm -hmm. with strategizing, designing, um, kind of like all that, that whole kind of area in the production process, if you will. Not getting stuck there, but the people who know where we need to go, the people who can see it, the people mm -hmm. who have the strong North Star and who are oriented strongly toward it, those people needing to build software well. And so when yeah. you say we build with a plan, I can't think of anything more potent and powerful for what's required in technology today. That's beautiful. That's beautiful yeah. because that's what I see as well. I'm not, it's it's very interesting. Historically, uh, I'm not the, the guy, even though I've been doing this, this for 25 years, I've, I was never like, I love software. Like this software is <laughs> the, the thing that I like the most, but it's so important that, that I feel like I have to love it. <laughs> And yeah. I, I keep coming back and back to it. It wasn't like every time I went away from software, I ended up facing a challenge for which software was the best solution. And then I came back to software. So um, <laughs> sometimes I think it's me <laughs> because I've been a, uh, around software from an early age. So I, right. I can see where, where software can come become a solution. I always come back to software. It's not like I decided early in my life that I love this, was, this was my career, etc. No, it's I have the need for building software right. because I see how much we can achieve through it and technology right. in general, right? Just yeah. that software is, software is eating the world faster yeah. than other technologies. It is. It's so true. It makes me reflect on my experience, even as a non-technical person, like continuing to come back to software and just noticing how many problems can be solved with the use of technology. Yeah. We'll use that as a broader yeah. term, like you said. 
And just even as a non-technical person, I'm like, oh, this would be such a clever way to insert technology and fix this problem or at least aid this problem in some way. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had quite an experience with being a musician, being a dancer, like having a skill set that absolutely exists outside of technology and then continuing to come back to it throughout your life. Yeah. It's it also it also helped that software paid a lot more than, than music and dance. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> I know. So if I, only music could pay more. <laughs> but I I I had to come back to it for other reasons as well. When I had my tango school, where we were teaching how to dance the tango, because it was such a challenging business, mm-hmm. I had to take advantage of technology to be able to scale something up. Oh wow! Right. So uh, even for for uh, Ganas, which was the name of my school, basically marketing automation, everything everything oh. around marketing was automated for us from from uh, Facebook ads, which was the biggest mm-hmm. channel we used, uh, until the whole landing pages website. It was all integrated, and okay. I didn't use like off the shelf tools for that. I built software for that because oh, wow. i had the i had the skill set and okay. i i felt i would uh, automate it better than the off the shelf Mo- not better for everyone but better for mm-hmm. us like okay. the the very bespoke solution that we needed and in the end i, I wanted to to spend more of my day uh, dancing or teaching doing tech stuff and, yeah. <laughs> and i was and i was coding <laughs> Okay, talking about bespoke solutions, I would love to return back to what methodologies and tools Seasoned uses. There are three pillars, I would say, to our differentiation, which is Mm -hmm. the first one is method. We have a very specific way of doing things we already touched on it a little bit which is shape up our version mm-hmm. of it i'll i'll dive uh, deeper in a second the second pillar is our tech stack and together with this is specialization in one tech stack we don't do multiple tech stacks. we do our tech stack we might change it over time but it's sequential not parallel okay and the third one is people and culture which is people, uh, culture and people, almost the same thing. And by that, I mean great talent as well, mm-hmm. but also great um, a, a culture that develops talent, not only that attracts talent. Mm-hmm. And this is, of course, the hardest to, to scale. In terms of the method, we use a method that's based on ShapeUp. Mm-hmm. We created our own tool, talking about coming back to software, we created yeah. our own software for managing a ShapeUp in a way that works perfectly for us, not mm-hmm. necessarily for other companies, but I think yes, for other companies as well. The, okay. They just wanted to be very aligned with our way of doing stuff. And ShapeUp is a method where you basically have three stages 
the first one is called framing mm -hmm. and you basically frame the problem you're trying to solve in a big picture kind of way right. but you s already start having a sense of how much you want to invest into solving this problem imagine you say you i'm gonna use a closed gap example because yeah, we talked about this uh, often you want to redesign the dashboard mm -hmm. for for because over time we added a lot of stuff there and we wanted yeah. to to make it more uh, make it simpler to use for example yeah then we will at this stage narrow down the problem really well mm -hmm. and make sure redesign means the same thing for me for you for the whole team right because redesign redesign is what on shape up they call this like a, gra a grab bag totally like, and it's and the framing is also where everyone comes together and starts creating shared language Yes, like there were exactly. so many times, you know, with close gap where one person would be calling something one thing and I would be calling it another yeah. thing. And it's where everyone kind of convenes, gets the shared language, talks about things in the same exact way, gets on the same page, more or less. Yes. And the output of framing is this kind of alignment around the problem we're trying to solve, maybe with a hint of the solution. Together, you also have a range of investment. We call this uh, on ShapeUp, uh, which by the way, I need to, to mention, ShapeUp is a methodology by Basecamp. Mm -hmm. And you should look it up at basecamp.com slash ShapeUp right now. Stop this and, and we can link it too. Because we talked yes. about so many resources, we can link all the goodies. Yeah. And then you have a range of appetite for investment. Mm -hmm. You say, okay, I, I know if we invest more than six weeks of our team in this redesign, I would feel like throwing money away. So it's right. not adequate. But uh, I also want to give it the proper attention. So let's say from three to six weeks of time. That's the output of framing. And then right. comes shaping. And just, just so folks Go really ahead. understand the appetite piece, it's it's really interesting as the client or in the founder perspective because with let's take redesigning the dashboard that could be a two-month project right that could be you know or we'll keep it at six weeks so it could be a six-week project where we just focus all of our attention and effort into really perfecting the dashboard and that six week will have some sort of outcome right yeah and then but if your appetite, you could also approach the same exact problem, but with an appetite of one to two weeks, right? And the result yeah. will be incredibly different. But it's it's important for founders to think about how much time, energy, and effort are you willing to invest to solve this problem? The appetite was yeah. always a really interesting like moment of friction for me because 
I was like, oh my God, I want to spend all the time on it to perfect it, right? I really have an eye for it being like perfect and what it needs to be. But then I'm incredibly oriented toward, no, let's spend two days. Let's get it out there and see what yeah. happens. So the appetite yeah. for some folks will be a really interesting exercise to move through. And it's a back and forth. Like you can, yeah. uh, we can ask you questions and you say like, Two to from two to six weeks or from three as an, in our example and over time when we create a solution maybe we create a solution that requires eight weeks right. and you take and you look at the solution and say oh my god this is awesome this will solve yes. all our problems let's use eight weeks for this right like this this kind of thing happens a lot or the opposite totally. we we cannot come up with a great solution and but there's this one little workaround that feels right. Right. And then the appetite changes from three to six to like one week. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the appetite's it's such back an interesting forth. experience. Yeah. But in, on the shaping phase, what we do is that we design the solution based mm -hmm. on the appetite. While we do that, we're going to move the appetite from a range to fixed appetite, like the appetite is five weeks, but we only move from a range to a fixed appetite after we did a little bit of shaping, of designing the solution. The output of shaping is a document that we call sh uh, the pitch for the project that already mitigated the bulk of the risk of the project. Right. It's not micromanagement of the developments developers work in a sense that where you say exactly what are the tasks but you yeah. mitigated the chance of the imagine software development involves risks yeah. a lot of risk imagine you could start the redesign and it could easily end up taking three months because we were yeah not conscious of the appetite we were like iterating freely or mm -hmm. it, yeah there, there's a lot of ways we can end up spending so much more or we yeah. uh, we found a rabbit hole a technical rabbit hole or a business rabbit hole we we thought we were able to do it this way but for this integration with this other ad tech it won't work right. all this kind of stuff so shaping what shaping does is framium shaping by the way but it's shaping's responsibility to mitigate the risk from what we call a fat tailed risk something that has a fat tailed risk can variate from 3 to 30 this is more mm -hmm. like an order of magnitude a margin of error to a thin tailed risk where you can you still have variation but it's like from 3 to 4 from 3 to right. 5 tops and then you won't literally throw throw bad money after bad money into a problem right. when, when you haven't uh, mitigated the risk. So the output of shaping is a pitch that mitigated the risk of the project, not in yes. a sense of making it all uh, predictive. It's never, software development is never predictable, right. but you mitigated the bulk of the highlight. risk. Yes. So it mitigates the risk. And you mentioned this too, but I think it's worth highlighting again that it's not about laying out exactly what the developers are going to do. Yeah. The pitch is not like a task list 
or like you said, predictive, like this is exactly how it's going to go. It actually focuses mainly on the risks and as you said, just mitigates them, right? And really starts to begin to put the project into a shape and a texture. Exactly, exactly. But the the developers then, the developers and designers get the pitch, Mm -hmm. read the pitch and we have a kickoff meeting and then we start the building phase. The building phase ideally lasts for the appetite of the project and not more. Sometimes we decide to extend it, but it it will be a conscious decision. And we usually only do that if we feel like we're already at the very end of things. There's no risk involved. Otherwise, we would recommend if if we use the appetite and we don't get to the solution, we recommend to you to go back to the drawing board, frame the problem again, shape it again. And well, in yeah, the end, and that's what it would mean if we didn't yeah. solve the problem. Then something happened during framing and shaping that was not yeah. what needed to happen. Yeah, or yeah, or, or there was a rabbit hole that maybe we technical rabbit mitigate, holes, true, true, something like that. And then it's not that we are trying to make it uh, predictable, even though it becomes consistent. What we're trying is to avoid is that you know the bet you're making. If you're betting three weeks in redesigning the dashboard, as an example mm-hmm. again, the maximum, the downside, the maximum downside for your bet is three weeks. After three weeks, you can decide to, to extend it a little bit, but it's another bet because you're going to see where we, we are and you're right. going to decide, okay, let's, let's make it four. Yeah. But it won't happen what usually happens in software projects, which is, oh, we couldn't do it. You have a weekly sprint call in mm-hmm. Scrum. Oh, we couldn't get to the solution this week, but if we feel like we next week we will. And then next week comes mm-hmm. and mm, not mm-hmm. yet. Let, let's, we, 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 th- this came up. And then, right. and then because, because it's a very iterative process, it feels like both sides are in, are in charge of these decisions. But because no one, took a step back and shaped the solution for real, both sides are actually micromanaging, micromanaging each other on a weekly basis. And, and yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. It's so important. Oh my God. Yeah. But that's the, the, the building. After, after you right. build, you deliver and, and, and you start the cycle again. And the difference in, in shape up is that you have parallel tracks. It's not necessarily sequential the same right. team does the framing the same team does the shaping the same team does the building right now at season we have the cto doing the framing and the shaping and the the client does a lot of the framing because right. it's perfectly doable for for our yes. clients to do the framing yeah. and the and more the client brings the framing time. the better right saves time yeah. and resources yes. yeah we have uh, then another team, which is the building team, the, the developers, designers, the building. And usually when they end a project, the next project is already ready, shaped, the pitch is ready, and we start a new one. That's a long explanation, which feels short because there's much more to it. You did a really good job explaining that. I'm wondering, I think the language bets sometimes sounds mm. problematic because a bet typically in gambling is, you know, a bet. And so the only thing I would highlight is bet is 
in this framework is a very, very de-risked bet. Yeah. Right. So in yeah. a lot of ways, I still like the language bet. I still appreciate it. But just for folks who are just getting into shape up or just learning, bet sounds very extreme. It's not. It's yeah. very de-risked because of what takes place in the framing and shaping process. Yeah. It's the opposite of a gamble. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. It's the opposite of a gamble, but it's still a bet. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> There's still some risk, which is yeah. true in all software development, right? Yeah. And I think that that's something, this was to your point that you made very early on, was that most people kind of forget that software development is really hard or that it is re risky or that it does involve bets. And I think it's just something important for everyone to remember that this everything we build is an experiment And that's awesome because it means we get to learn from everything, but yeah. it's not, um, you know, it's not perfect and written in stone. And that's actually fun because then there's room for improvement and more creative opportunities along the way. And since we spoke a lot about the method today, I think I'm going to yeah. leave the stack and the culture for other moments. Yes. Just going to give a hint about for the stack, we try to to come up with an open source stack that's really, really productive. Where when you know what to build from the shaping, right? You can just go and build it without too much what we call boilerplate, which is like code that's not necessary to be built. All right, everyone. Well, that's a wrap on the Dare to Build podcast. We have our first episode in the books. We're done. Yes. Daniel, it was so fun to talk to you about all of these amazing topics. I can't wait to get into our next one. Listen, it's a huge pleasure to be having these conversations with you, especially because I always enjoy this, this back and forth we have. So welcome. And episode one is out there. Yes. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for listening, everyone. We hope this conversation helps you build better. We want to make sure this content is helpful and relevant. Is there anything we talked about that you'd like to learn more about? Drop it in the comments below. If you like this conversation, like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on the Dare to Build podcast.